This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. life-testing situations have what some call fallout blessings. Megan Carnarius' work is about understanding some of the deeper lessons we are exposed to through caring for individuals with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. We all want a cure, but in the meantime, while this illness is still with us, how can we create a quality of life for each person in each stage of the disease? How can we look deeper into situations that, at first glance, look hopeless and destructive in order to find opportunities for insight, inspiration, and great understanding of ourselves and those we love? How can we allow the full measure of the experience to unfold and be felt with as much of ourselves as we can bring to bear? Megan's work helps people caring for those going through the difficult dementia journey find a way through the tumultuous waves to remain awake and open to the blessing of a journey that opens the heart, nurtures compassion, and ultimately enables each of us to be better human beings. It is also for those brave individuals living with memory loss illnesses so that they be supported and allowed to live their experience fully in their own unique way, to express themselves, to love and be loved, and to be sheltered from harm. That with each stage of the progression, those around the person with dementia find ways to emphasize the loved one's remaining strengths rather than spotlight their weaknesses. A person with dementia has a whole and well spirit, and in the broadest sense, their brain is a vehicle of self-expression. It does not define their essence. Megan Carnarius also addresses head-on the final stage of the disease, when the brain has exhausted all its compensatory ability and the individual is no longer able to take part in regular day-to-day life. At this advanced stage of the disease process, people with dementia are in a deep, internal state that caregivers generally cannot access and share. It can be a very disheartening time. This internal state separates the person with dementia from those around them. However, rather than thinking of it as a prison wall separating the person with dementia from the caregiver, 
it may be more helpful to think of the person having retreated into a cloistered existence for a while, affording them the time needed by the soul to attend to deeper aspects of the self on a spiritual level. This phase also allows those around the person to honor the vessel or body that has housed the loved one in this life and prepare to let them go. When ready, the individual will know the time to leave and, if allowed, will let go. Megan Carnarius, RN, NHA, LMT, is a published author and the owner of Memory Care Consulting, LLC. Megan has over 22 years' experience in direct management of memory care settings in skilled and assisted living, with 33 years in geriatric nursing. She is a registered nurse, a licensed nursing home administrator, and licensed massage therapist. Megan served on the Alzheimer's Association Education Committee, designed award-winning memory care facilities, and served as an adjunct faculty member at Naropa University. In 2015, she published A Deeper Perspective on Alzheimer's and Other Dementias, Practical Tools with Spiritual Insights, Findhorn Press. Megan recently launched her consulting practice. She provides building design and program consulting, care management and caregiving consulting to families and facilities, and lectures and training. Here is the interview with Megan Carnarius. In your own words, who is Megan Carnarius? Wow, what a great question. My mother, when she was raising us, she talked about wanting us to be healing presences. And when she was passing, she was reminding us of that. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. Um, because I've always been interested in healing, education, how to work with people to help people in a way that makes sense for them, that helps them make progress on the things that they're working on. And so I think I'm a passionate advocate. Yeah, that's, I think that would be a good description. That sounds really good. <laughs> um, I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about the topic in your book, a deeper perspective on Alzheimer's and other dementias, practical tools and spiritual insights. So my first warm-up question is, what is life to you? Uh, life is about learning, uh, making a difference, and understanding love. What do you think is the opposite of life? Wow. I think the matrix of things which support life, I think there's more life in things than we realize. I think things have beingness and are part of a network of support. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. Yeah. What is the meaning of freedom to you? I think that the free will, that, the, that we all have being and that we have opportunities to grow in our own unique way. And sometimes the circumstances may look different to someone else on the outside and they're totally appropriate for us and what we need to learn next. And I think having more compassion about what we're seeing and not being judgmental. So trying to shift into being less judgmental is really important, I think, for humanity and supporting people's freedom in terms of what they're trying to express and how they're trying to 
gain understanding and what makes sense to them. And I just think we were we really could be broader in how we ask those questions. I love that. The non-judgmental way of living my need to get started with ourselves, right? Right, right. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And what is your vision for a new world? I think we have to connect more to nature in a way that's respectful and with gratitude. I think this thing of using resources, feeling that the animals in the world can be abused or used in a certain way, like a commodity. I really think that we need to be better stewards and care for our resources in a way of recognizing the divine in everything and that we can't keep doing what we're doing from a point of view of consuming or um, just looking from a financial or a material aspect, that there's really something much deeper going on that we need to resonate with and really act on. Mm. I love that, Megan. And that's true. One of my guests said something interesting. She talked about this way of living that's more transactional and it should be more transformational. Mm -hmm. So the next four questions, they have something to do with spirituality in general. The first one is about love. What is love to you? How do you define, what is your own definition for love? I think there are many forms of love, and I think all of them benefit <laughs> all of us uh, when we're on that vibration or we're having those feelings or we find that way to connect to something in that in that light. It really um, expands us and it allows us to envision or hope in a greater way. What, where, and who is God to you? God is, is a great being. <laughs> and I think of us as differ differentiated drops of God. So we're made into a soul and then we incarnate and we have an experience and so in that way, God gets to know itself better by all of us having all these experiences. And then when we make our transition back into that oneness, we bring all of that back with us. And I think there's a cycle of expansion and contraction going and returning. And that there's a, a way that God is in each of us, that there's that of God in every person in everything that is. And that's also a way for us to find our way home and find our way to each other is being able to connect to that. And I don't mean that from a religious standpoint. I think religion has a way of helping people manifest qualities or things that they want to work on or ritualize to help them resonate and remember that part of themselves. But I think it's, it's less differentiated than that. It's really something much bigger that we can all be a part of and find connection to each other through. Wow, I love that. Uh, would you say that that's what we call uh, spirituality? Yes, yes. Okay. Do you think that life has a grand purpose for all of us? And the follow-up question is, what do you think is the purpose of your life? Oh, I absolutely feel like we have a purpose that's bigger. We have a a mission in a sense. I feel like when we're born, we make certain choices and decisions before we come in to facilitate what it is that we're trying to 
work on or do, and that we have many opportunities and also eras in our lives to explore different kinds of experiences. But I think they're themes, and I think people are trying to work through those things and feel, and sometimes we forget, you know, sometimes we get kind of off track or lost, and and there are things that bring us back to that. But I absolutely feel like there's a bigger plan about why we're here and that and that we need to stay in a way connected to our center so that then we can also be connected to our higher self and have a conversation with our higher self or that of God within us so that we can kind of stay on track when we feel lost. I like that as a method, staying connected with what you call the higher self, the soul. Um, speaking of that, what are some of the methods that we can do that, access that inner voice and the inner wisdom? I think getting quiet sometimes is really important. I think one of the blessings for me of this virus experience is having everything sort of simplified don't go out, don't be busy outside the home and just try to be doing things at home in a way creates a kind of quiet. And in that, I discover there are things springing up in me that I haven't thought about for a long time or that I haven't felt in a long time. And in that space, you're able to explore some things that sometimes were too busy. Um, I grew up in the Quaker faith and we have silent meeting for worships and the whole purpose is to be quiet and connect to that of you that is that spiritual being and try to have a dialogue or to just be patient and wait <laughs> if something's going to come up you know it just be, be still and know you know kind of remember oh I could be still and know so I think that's that's True. a great thing and then I think there are other practices like movement dance um People running. I used to do a chakra balancing exercise every time I would go jogging. And I loved doing that because I was moving through space. But then I was also trying to pay attention to what was my energy like and where was it stuck? Where was it slow? Where was it heavy? And then just kind of cleansing it. So I think I think there are a lot of different approaches. People making beautiful food. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> I agree. at peace and chopping a vegetable and looking at how gorgeous it is. You know, it's yeah. just I think we can find ways to connect that way too. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, A Deep Perspective on Alzheimer's and Other Dementias? So I have a, a younger sister who had some challenges. And when we were young, um, my mother had a meeting with us and she said, your sister is a whole spirit. And she's having a handicapping experience. And part of the purpose of us being together is not the tragedy of these challenges. That's not the tragedy. What would be a tragedy is if we didn't recognize her whole spirit and try to help her shine through. So I'm going to be the best mother I can be. I want you to be the best sister. I want us to all recognize that we chose to come together and, and work together in this way and that she's bringing this opportunity to us. And I was seven, and I thought all families had meetings like this, which as I got older, I realized wasn't true. <laughs> right. Oh, God. But that, that theme of you have a whole spirit, no matter what your process, what your situation, what you're going through, 
you have a whole spirit. So how do we help people that are feeling oppressed or suppressed or um, hindered by something in life? And how do we work through that? So I worked with special needs children and I lived in communities, learned how to be a Waldorf special education teacher. And in that process, I saw an amazing massage technique that was only taught in Germany. And I went and studied in the anthroposophical circles, um, this type of massage. And I had to go to nursing school in order to get into that school. So suddenly I was weaving education and healing modalities of massage, hydrotherapy, aromatherapy. I studied painting. And so this thing of what makes somebody ill What's the, what, what happened that we got to this point of physical manifestation of an illness? And is there any way to unwind it again? Is there anything that could help the person come back to a sense of healing or wholeness? And even if the physical thing can't be totally transformed, it might be a bridge to something that really is important for that soul or being to experience, that they want the learning from that. So trying really hard not to judge situations and that you're not outside of God, even though you're having a really difficult experience. And so the thing of how can we gather around someone and provide that platform for them to have the best situation possible to do the work that they want to do. So when I came back to the States, I'd been in Europe for a while, I was working as a nurse and I ended up really connecting to people with dementia and there were no special programs, there wasn't special training, this is years and years ago. And so I felt like they were a really marginalized group and I couldn't stand it and I wanted to help them as much as I could and I ended up with the opportunity of opening uh, the first memory care secure setting in Boulder County. And then over the next few years, I was talking about some of these concepts and I had families come up to me and say, Megan, you're talking about this in a really different way and we want you to write it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I never thought of writing a book, but it took me a long time because I'm not the kind of person that can go write for 10 minutes in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. have to really get into a space and then life happens. You know, my mother was very ill. I, I got married, then I got divorced nine years later and I had some injuries that happened. And so I would kind of get wiped off the map and then I would come back and start working on the book again. And then Finthorn Press in Scotland picked it up and I was so grateful that they did that. And I'm so grateful that I got it done because there's so many positive things that I see there are many hard things and there's poignant things and there are things that we have to grieve and be supported in our grief. But there are also things like fallout blessings you don't expect, people healing things from a lifetime of something difficult that they could never heal in a normal way. And then when they got this process going of this disease, it un locked them and it, it disinhibited them. It was, it gave them a chance to express things or look at things that they never had an opportunity to do. And if we can listen, knowing that there's a bigger healing or a bigger traverse happening and not just be myopic on what's the next loss, we have to support the losses, but we have to be able to include 
all the things that that soul might be doing. And so that's why I ended up writing the book. I absolutely love your compassionate and spiritual approach and perspective that can be applied to any kind of physical illness, really. You wrote about Alzheimer's, and that's what your work is about. So I will ask questions related to that. What is Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So dementia is an umbrella term, and it means change, like loss of memory, loss of mind from the Latin word for dementia. And Alzheimer's makes up about 70% of those diagnoses. There are other kinds of dementias, cardiovascular Lewy body disease, frontal temporal lobe disease, and some, some other ones that are a little bit more common. But Alzheimer's is the greatest diagnosis at this point. And Alzheimer's has stages where in early stage, and I write about this in my book, it's like the loss of adult learning. So the things that you learn last in life and that you've used as an adult, managing your bills, driving a car, being in touch with people you love, accessing multifaceted parts of yourself, those things are all part of adult learning. And what we see is in reverse, Alzheimer's affects people's development, and then it takes it away. It's like it, they revisit it, and then in reverse, they let it go. So people start having trouble with driving, paying bills, remembering to take their medicine, Short-term memory is affected in that early part, and that's because of the part of the brain that is the first signs of warning with Alzheimer's. People say, I can't remember if I called you, and did I? what did we talk about, or I can't remember what I had for breakfast, I don't remember where I parked the car. And it starts interfering with daily life, so people end up seeking help. About 50% of people with dementia don't have insight that they have a problem, so that makes it really challenging for families because they some families get really hung up on wanting to convince the person they have memory loss. And we really have to move on from that because they can't remember what you just said. So there's no point in, quote unquote, kind of harassing them about that. Anyway, the loss of adult learning is first. Then we get into an era that's the loss of adolescent learning. And in that era, things get very emotional. People tend to get more disinhibited. They get angry, frustrated, upset. They might do things you've never seen them do before. They're really scared and they're really struggling with, you know, all these things used to work a certain way for me and now it's not working. And they're trying to assert that they are the same adult person that they were, but they're really having trouble processing executive decisions, um, you know, dealing with the order of things. How do I have judgment around this and get it done. And then we have the loss of childhood learning. And in that era, people can't figure out how do I dress? What's the order of it? What are all the steps to making coffee? I can't really track what's going on in this conversation. I'm, I, they shouldn't be driving at this point. They have trouble cooking. They don't know how to do their laundry. They're wearing the same clothes again. They're having trouble with bathing and hygiene. Uh, they really need someone supervising them just as you would in your early childhood. You would need someone around all the time. And so families are struggling with how do we support this person's safety and make sure they're okay in their home. And then the last stage is the loss of infant learning. And that was when care becomes very, very physical and people don't have their balance. They're falling. They aren't walking well. They can't feed themselves. They're incontinent. 
And each of these phase, phases lasts two to four years. So the, the average length of an Alzheimer's diagnosis is eight to 12 years. The older you are, the gentler its decline. So if someone gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's when they're 90, it's going to be a very slow progression. When somebody gets diagnosed younger onset, which is prior to the age of 65, that's going to go rapidly. And so for some families, that's really stunning how quickly people move through these stages when they're younger. And it's it's something the Alzheimer's Association and other organizations are trying to help families with because often they're like pre-Medicare age and their insurance is strange or maybe they lose their job and nobody knew it was because they had early Alzheimer's, that they were struggling with their work, just all kinds of challenges with that age group. But I think there's a lot more services and a lot more understanding and awareness now than there used to be. Like I, I've been doing this work for 33 years and it's really changed a great deal, the awareness and empathy. People understand what the caregivers are going through. Not, not maybe exactly or every situation, but they have a sense of what that must mean to be around someone who's losing their memory. And we've, you know, we've had Oscar-nominated movies, Still Alice, um, telling the story of a younger onset person. And I think that when you have stories like that coming into the mainstream media, really reaches a lot of people and it makes people more empathetic about what is that like for people. Yeah, right. We need more of this um, out there, more education, because I know that education will sort of eliminate judgment. So the more we know, the less we judge. Right. Does it happen also in young people, their 30s or 20s even? There's an association with Down syndrome uh, with some of the genetic types of Alzheimer's. And there are, the youngest reported case was 28, but that person had Down syndrome. And when you look at some of the other people that are coming up, it's there are some people that are 39, 35, um, and it's definitely connected to a genetic issue. There are 651 family members that are being studied right now internationally, and they've allowed themselves to be poked, prodded, and go through things that aren't necessarily FDA approved because all of them have a strong genetic component around younger onset. And for different individuals, it might be different ages where they start seeing the disease appear in their families, but they've all been acknowledged as you guys have this problem. And so I know a gentleman whose father was a group of 10 siblings and all 10 of them have come down with Alzheimer's by the time they're 50. So he's being in the study in his 30s to try to help them if there's anything that he could do to help them find a way to slow the disease or cure it or, you know, anything. And so he makes himself available to that effort. And every year annual, uh, they have like an annual conference internationally where people are comparing notes and talking about what they've been working on with these family groups all over the world. So um, it is, it is genetic when it's a younger onset, they feel. Um, it's about 5% of all diagnoses of Alzheimer's has that really younger onset component. I've met some people in their 40s um, who've had it already. And um, yeah, it just moves very quickly and it's hard because some of them still have children at home they're raising. And then maybe their parents come and live with them to help them raise their own children. It's, yeah, 
Besides genetics, what are the, the causes, Megan, the common causes for dementia or Alzheimer's? So there's three different changes in the brain that happen. One is uh, the brain excessively atrophies. There's protein amyloid plaques that lay down in the brain and they kind of mess up the works. They're, they're like a sticky substance. And then there's neurofibril tangles. So the challenge has been for a lot of scientists is like the chicken before the egg. Which one of these problems is first and is it causing the other ones? And how do we address each of these things in their own way? And they had questions about protein amyloids. They didn't know why they were happening in the brain. And there have been a couple of recent um, discoveries where they felt like a bacteria from oral health had gotten into the brain, crossed the blood-brain barrier, and the protein amyloids actually were trying to encapsulate the bacteria to make it not invade the brain. But in encapsulating it, they also affected the brain um, and then that was also uh, sort of concurred with with a chronic wasting disease in wildlife that they found a kind of bacteria in that brain. And they're wondering now if like some of Alzheimer's diagnosis are misdiagnosed and maybe it's this bacteria crossing the blood brain barrier. There's a lot of different things that are being worked on. Um, there's something called mild cognitive impairment. And it's in 40% of people who get that diagnosis, it doesn't turn into Alzheimer's. But 60% of the people who get mild cognitive impairment diagnoses, which is kind of like an early memory problem, you don't have Alzheimer's yet, it turns into Alzheimer's. So 60% turns into it. So what scientists have been doing is trying to work really hard with that 40% to understand why didn't it tip into Alzheimer's? What is it that this person's doing that might be helpful to everyone? And so that's where you're seeing a lot of the lifestyle health choices being tried to see if we can get people to not tip into it. So there's a couple key ones. You're, anything that's good for your heart is really good for your brain. So if you do cardiovascular exercise, like 30 to 40 minutes, three to four times a week, if you circulate socially, you make sure that you have connections with people, doesn't have to be hundreds, but that the connections you have feel good to you, that you eat like more of a Mediterranean diet with more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, less meat, less animal products, that you have a ability to be optimistic about life, that you have a kind of resiliency with that optimism. That seems to be a big deal. Um, meditation and being quiet, 12 minutes a day. Sleeping, eight hours a day reclined, like laying on your side, because your brain doesn't have the same lymphatic system the rest of your body does, and it really needs to be reclined and quiet to let the brain cleanse at night. And so, you know, this like uh, healthy habits around sleep, so you're not falling asleep in the recliner with all the lights on, that you have a way of taking yourself to bed and really getting good rest. Um, coffee seems to be a good thing. Chocolate, cacao seems to be a good thing. One glass of wine a day. <laughs> so we're okay with one glass. And uh, So there's things like that that, there's, that people have said for years, like, oh, I use coconut oil. I don't use dairy butter. I use honey or stevia instead of sugar. Like there are things that people have been saying, or like even Wheat Belly, the book Wheat Belly saying, I don't want to eat um, 
and have a wheat intolerance and be slightly inflamed all the time by too many carbs. And that that, if I can get into a, a, a healthier digestion, a digestion that's really supported with gut health, does that help my brain? Well, ultimately, yes, it absolutely does. So, so any of those lifestyle choices that we're making for the rest of us <laughs> is going to also help our brain. And if we can, um, there's, there's a thing my mom said, she said, that which we focus upon, we increase. And so if people are terrified of getting Alzheimer's, that is not really the approach I would want them to take. I would want them to be focused on how do I have the best, richest, most full, wonderful life? And that's what I want to think about. How do I get my life to really feel uh, exuberant? You know, like it's it's full instead of I am so afraid of this thing. I'm so afraid of this thing. That's not what we want to focus on. True. And I agree. Yeah. All the um, suggestions you gave for uh, basically prevention of Alzheimer's or dementia, they have a relationship with um, preventing all the other health problems could emerge. So that's interesting. Right. What about the treatments? Are there different treatments for each stage? Or So, so there isn't really a cure. They haven't figured out the cure. They don't know how to delay the disease, really. Once you have Alzheimer's, you know, individually, people maybe would make some of these lifestyle choices to see if they could slow it down. But it just has its own mind in a way. It just kind of goes the way it's going to go. Um, and they don't really have treatments in terms of being able to stabilize something. So it's, it's more a question of how do I help this person have a good quality of life? and what enhances that life at this stage. So if someone loved golf, this is my favorite story, these four men played golf together. One of them had a wife who had Alzheimer's and when one of the players in the foursome started showing signs, he said to the other two guys, okay, this is what we're gonna do. So they all played golf together, they had lunch, they had drinks, and then they started using a cart instead of walking the course with their bags. Then they started letting the guy play the ball wherever it went. Like if it went out of out of the course, they were like, I'm <laughs> going to start a new ball. It doesn't matter. And then they went down to nine holes instead of 18. They were still always eating lunch and having their drink. And then it got to the point where they were only having lunch and having a drink. And then when he couldn't come to the golf course anymore, when they visited the building he lived in, they always, each of them would visit with a golf club and they would sit outside on a, um, patio chair and kind of swing the club around, like talk using the club, like just having a club there. And this gentleman always had the impression after their visits that he had done 18 holes, that he had had lunch and had a drink. So the thing of like, how do you get the quintessential piece of the experience that's the most important that the person can connect with successfully no matter what? So no matter where they are in the progression, how can we help them still experience those things that they love and still stay connected to these people. And this foursome really did a great job of figuring out how do we make it simpler? How do we make it just fun? How do we not worry about what the problems are? You know, just how do we have camaraderie? And so I think that's really the key is you, you, have, to, you have to keep up with where are we now and what's the best way to connect. So like, you know, talking about something someone loved to talk about and getting them to tell their stories again when they're still able to. 
and then recounting the story back to them when they're faltering with their speech or using music to sing and connect through music. Um, and then being able to look on a beautiful vista and have an ice cream cone together without a lot of words and just be enjoying sensory experiences of listening to the birds and the sunshine is on you and you just have this lovely breeze, just being able to experience what's our humanity and how can we be connected without using a whole lot of words. And then when someone needs a lot of physical care, how can I make that really loving and not functional or task oriented? How can I really be present with this person in a way that they are still part of this world and there's a reason they're still here because many people leave before they get to the end, the last stage, they don't get all the way to the end. And a lot of people worry about that when they get a diagnosis, but I would say only about 20% of people get to the last stage and stay in that stage for a while. So if someone's there, I'm like, wow, what's going on? That they're here still, are they waiting so that a member of their family is more ready for their departure? Are they tying up loose ends in a very, very inward way that's uninterrupted by all the mundane aspects of living and that all of that's been handed off so that they have a very deep, cloistered, quiet place to work through some things before they depart from this body? You know, so I feel like there's a rightness about why is someone here and what's going on for them that if we can align ourselves with again, in this really loving, gentle, supportive way, I think people wouldn't be as scared of Alzheimer's. I think they're really scared of being vulnerable, of not being treated right. And if we could help everyone feel, let's make sure you're really treated, you're really held in, the, in a way that's, that's really whole and genuine and is at your pace, the pace that you are in at that point, how can we be at your pace? Then I think it, it, people would have a very different impression of Alzheimer's. Oh, no doubt about it. I absolutely love your approach, your philosophy, your perspective. It's very, I mean, it's not even spiritual. It's just, um, it's just human. So you're coming from the heart. But to me, the heart, is, it knows it all. <laughs> it has wisdom, and that's what we need more. Is that what you call compassionate caregiving? Right. And, and you said it earlier when you said it's really important for people to understand things because then they stay objective. So for a caregiver, sometimes you get too immersed and you get too close to what's happening, and it's hard to not take things personally or to kind of have a spaciousness so that you can allow this person to do what they need to do and then also take care of yourself. What are the things you need to do in relationship to giving care that help you sustain a full cup and that then you're able to give that freely and not feel um, oppressed by the whole situation? And because memory care support is such a long experience and people change so much over time and you're dealing with so many different things that come up. It's a, it's a well-rounded caregiving experience because it isn't just all physical or just all emotional or just all memory, but it's all of those things that it takes a certain capacity for the person to be able to meet that and provide that. And, and so I always say, share your loved one. You know, it, it, you're doing things for yourself, trying to manage it, but also it's really important that you let other people come in and help and bring their area of excellence or their 
thing that's unique to them that might be a contribution to that person's life that you let these people get to know each other at this point. And instead of feeling a sense of failure at needing help, think about it more as I'm going to share my loved one with other people so that they get to know him too, or that they get to know her. And that that's a really different community kind of minded way of bringing people together and helping us all have our gifts and our talents, but then also be supported in ways where we kind of suffer because we haven't developed that part of ourselves yet. Right, right. So when I asked you about the treatments, there is no cure. So treating this. Um... Right. So the medications that they have right now, uh, what they do is they try to help that when the neural synapses fire, there are chemicals in the brain that have to make a connection to another neural synapse. So what the medications try to do is help build like a bridge or an escalator so that 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 chemical response is getting captured and healthy receptor sites are being found and supported. And they think they add like a year to three years of better functioning, but meanwhile, the disease is continuing. So it's just that the neurons can communicate better for a period of time with some of this medication support. Some people, it doesn't make much difference. Other people, it makes a lot of difference, but it's not really... You know, it's not really ideal because we would love to see the disease stop progressing. And um, let me see. I have an, I have another question about uh, the signs. How do we know when someone close to us they are presenting the the signs of dementia? So sometimes people start repeating things. They ask you something, you give them an answer, and then a few minutes later they ask you the same question. They complain about losing things. They complain about people not remembering stuff when actually they're the ones not remembering. They might start having little dings on their car or uh, getting lost uh, driving. They're constantly losing their phone. The bank starts calling because they're trying to take money out repeatedly. Money stuff starts getting hard. And I think it's really important if people notice personality changes, mood changes, to get to talk about how can I support you? I notice you seem kind of irritated lately or I'm worried because you seem kind of sad. Is there anything going on? And when you get a diagnosis, you try to rule out things you can fix. And there are people that get memory problems from uh, vitamin B12 deficiencies, thyroid problems. There are other things that can cause memory loss. So if we can get people to their physician and go through a regular physical and rule out anything that might be fixable, then we're looking at that question of, okay, what's really going on? And some families have to get creative about how they get the person to the doctor, and they have to talk to the doctor about not putting the person on the spot, but that they're having these concerns, and they want to find a way to sort of elucidate that without being too confrontive to the person because the person may not want to go back to the doctor ever again if they're told they have this problem. So sometimes they have to be creative about trying to get help for that person. But you you notice kind of not, they're not the same, they're not as broad and they don't access parts of themselves the way they used to. And, and then there's this repetition that you start noticing. And, and memory loss really starts to interfere with daily life. So you may visit once a week and you notice the person isn't bathing. And their long-term memory might inform them 
oh, I wake up every morning and I shower, but they get dressed and they don't realize they missed that step, but you're observing some changes in them. And that's why it's important to, you know, obviously we want to have good relationships so that when we have these difficult things to talk about, we can find a way to support that person. And, you know, if someone has to become the power of attorney and we have to figure out what are we going to do from here and how do we help this person when they become incompetent, it's just obviously easier if you've got relationships where you can talk about things (laughs) than, you know, some families that's really challenging. So I understand that. (laughs) True, because they get involved emotionally and then because in a way they lose the, uh, the loved one before they really lose them. Right, right. That they change a lot and that sometimes people feel they use that phrase, never ender any funeral, or the person that I love died already. And I, I kind of feel like, okay, wait a second, people. <laughs> you know, when you were a baby, you are not anything like you are now when you were a baby. True. True. And when you were a young child, you're, you were totally different. And you were all those things and more. And so when we have people shedding aspects of themselves, and, and really shedding also some of the mundane connections to daily life, that thing of what is shining brighter in here? How do I find the being of this person when they're shedding all the things that they layered themselves with through this life? And it's like the illusion of impermanence. This disease helps us recognize impermanence in such a strong way and go past that and look at what is the being of this person, even if they're not the person I was used to being around or had a certain purpose to me. It forces us to get unconditional about our relationships. It makes us look deeper into who is underneath all these layers and how can I be connected and love that person anyway. We are much more than our brains. Wow, Megan, that is such a great observation because we are talking about memory and without a memory, there's just the being. Right. So that's detached from everything that we have learned. And most of what we have learned is actually not of much use to the soul, let's say. Well, I think I think the soul has gathered all of those things. You can't take it away from them. I think the soul has been active in all the parts of our life and even... You know, like if you think about a child and how much they learn in the beginning, you can't really get children or babies to be self-conscious. Like they just are, they're just busy doing stuff. And so I think what happens at the end of life is you have another era where we really shouldn't be trying to make someone hold on or report or be self-aware in that way. And if we could gentle our judgment and say, okay, if this elder is on their way out, They're trying to prepare to leave. They're casting off everything that they added that's not necessary to them and that their being has absorbed everything from this lifetime. And it knows, it knows who you are. It knows what relationship it is. It just can't access that file cabinet on a physical level. And we have a dependency on the physical and on I'm seeing you and you look this way and this is how I know you. And it's like shakes that all up. And to say, okay, if the soul can take every experience it needs to with it, and it just lets go of whatever the physical form was that it took, but it still it still has a connection. 
it still knows us. It still loves us. It still, you know, it had all these experiences, but it, it's not in the part of its life where it's accessing these file cabinets and letting us know that. So we have to trust that our relationships are true and that, that, you know, I'm in a package too. <laughs> and so, you know, I have to be recognized somehow. Otherwise, I'm like a bag of water walking around. And so the thing of, you know, the being recognizes me and I recognize the being. And in that moment, it's timeless. And, and, it, and there isn't judgment about this or that. Th- those things just fall away. And there's just a love. There's just an appreciation about... You've been here. You were part of all of this. And now it's time for you to go. You're letting go of this. So how can I help you do that in the best way? Yeah, how wonderful. There's a section in your book that's called um, the, uh, the Importance of Humor, Sense of Humor. Talk to me about that. Well, it's a real, it's an equalizer. Like when, when we all laugh, we all share something. And I had a resident that, a couple funny stories, but I'll just tell you this one. This resident loved walking outside and we had two courtyards and she would walk all the time. Well, one day the sprinklers were not on the right time setting and they suddenly started to go off as she was outside. And she started trying to run away from the sprinkler only to run into the next one. And so we all ran outside. A couple of us that were working like ran outside. And then she saw that we were running after her so then she intentionally ran into every sprinkler so then we ran after her into every sprinkler and then we all came back inside and we were standing there all dripping wet all laughing and there was no one old no one young no one sick no one well just human beings soaking wet laughing <laughs> and and there's this thing that the patient and the the carer and the you know, you just start getting into these categories. And when you have humor, it just makes things light. And it's a really good way to tell if you're burnt out is if you start losing your sense of humor, you need to really think about what do I need to do to help me have levity? You know, how can I come at things with with humor? It just makes such a difference. And even though something can be really, really upsetting, there can be some very, very funny moments in the middle True. So we are at the end of our conversation. I absolutely love your wisdom, love your wisdom. And I know you talk about your mother. So she has passed on. I'm sure this is almost like a transmission. Absolutely. Yeah, she's she's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's really awesome. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I can feel <laughs> Yeah, how wonderful. So this is the end of this section. Would you like to add anything before I ask you my final questions, Megan? No, I I love the richness of the questions you've been asking me. It's really fabulous. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So my final questions, uh, let me see. Yeah, I'll ask you this one. What is another word for healing? Alignment. Alignment. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in this lifetime? (laughs) Wow. Um, I think that you can't fix everything, you know, and you have to learn how to be with that and let go and allow whatever it is that's going to be really there to be there. I think to understand 
When can I bring my energy to something? When can I be supportive? What is it I can bring? Those are all really important things that are happening and going on, but also knowing I have to now let go of this or I have to move away from this. You know, I think that's been a really hard, hard thing to learn. Yeah, I think for all of us, for me, certainly (laughs) not trying to fix everything. Yeah. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you change anything in your life or do anything differently? Um, I think this thing right now of, of trying to get quiet and I just wish sometimes you, you know, you had more space and time to do certain things. And I think connecting with people that you love and making sure that you really do that and that you have opportunities to do that. And I've, you know, people with dementia have really taught me a lot about don't have regrets and don't have things that were left unsaid or left undone because at some point you may not be able to speak. You may not be able to use words. And I've been doing this work for about 30, 33 years. So I think I do recognize that along the way of like, ooh, do I need to go back to that person and say something? Do I need to address this? Or what is it in myself that I'm feeling that would not make me happy if suddenly I was hit by a truck or, you know, right. oh, God. <laughs> had, yeah. had to leave. So I just, I think it's really important to sit and review a little bit periodically about where am I with those kinds of questions? I think that's a really good question. Um, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I think that we all have potential that we sometimes haven't tapped yet and that things may call on us or bring something forth that is really surprising or amazing And sometimes we just haven't had the opportunity to show that. And I think a lot of us learn through difficulty and hardship. And it's, I wish that wasn't so, but it has a way of getting our attention and helping us really get it when something's difficult. And I think the other thing of loving ourselves as a starting point is really hard for a lot of people. And so how can we increase the compassion to ourselves so that we really, when we're connecting to other people, we're not coming from that harsh and judge, judgy kind of place. We, we need to get softer with ourselves so that we can be gentler with others. Yeah. Wow. Yes to that, <laughs> to everything that you have been saying, really. Um, it has been a warm conversation Um, genuine. I love your wisdom and your presence. Boy, I love your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. It's fabulous. Thank you. And my last, last question. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? So my website, www.memorycareconsulting.com. Um, that's my work, uh, and it has the kinds of things that I do and offer. And my book is uh, with Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Simon and Schuster. You know, there are various listings for the book if people are interested in getting that. And then I am working on classes online to help caregivers 
so that's a project that I'm working on right now and also a project for faith communities of various kinds, how to work with people in their fellowships that are having these challenges and be more supportive to their process and to their carers along the way. So that those two things will be coming out in the near future, and that would be on the website as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Megan, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Megan Carnarius, please visit her website, memorycareconsulting.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.